When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. Thank you. I, uh, I heard recently that adults make 35 5,000 decisions every single day, which I found to be um, staggering and fascinating and uh, also incredibly stressful because if you're anything like me, um, making the right decision is really important to you. And uh, I was, uh, as a kid, I really did not like those um, choose-your-own-adventure books because um, I was always way too consumed with trying to make the right decision um, and wasn't able really to enjoy the process. So um, I was that kid that had my hand stuck in the page where you make the choice and then was flipping like really rapidly through the rest of the book trying to figure out which choice was going to give me uh, the least amount of pain or maybe the most benefit as I went through the book. Um, Unfortunately, uh, life doesn't work like this, right? Um, we have to go through life and make our decisions without really knowing how they're going to turn out. We just have to make them. Um, but the beautiful thing about this parable that we're studying together today uh, is no matter what our personality, um, no matter what motivates us or where we are on our spiritual journey, it's clear that Jesus gets us. He knows that our decisions are hard, um, and loves us through it. He's not afraid of real talk with us. And he calls us to make decisions that give us the privilege to be a part of his life-changing, world-changing, eternity-shaking work. He invites us to a beautiful feast. But in order to experience it, we need to be willing to make some decisions that may shake us up a little, uh, that may come at some cost, but for unbelievable gain. So let's pray and take a closer look. Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. The context of the parable that we enter into today is at the home of a Pharisee. If you guys were here for David's message last week, you'll remember that these guys were religious leaders, um, the highest in the social order at the time, esteemed and incredibly hypocritical. In this particular situation, they're trying to trap Jesus, and he has just schooled them in quick succession about their legalism, around their pride, and their tendency to try and elbow their way into places of honor, and their exclusivity and only ever associating with people that are like them and that they're comfortable with. 
So the tension is very high because in typical Jesus fashion, uh, he's shaking them up. So maybe in an attempt to try and relieve some of this tension, one of the guests exclaims suddenly in verse 15 that starts our passage for today, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And it's with this comment that Jesus starts our story. The Greek word for banquet being used in this story today is one that would have connoted the main meal of the day, happening in the late afternoon or the early evening. It would have been a meal that people were very excited to be invited to. They didn't have clocks at the time or phones to text each other when it was time to eat. So generally, a big feast like this would be first announced days beforehand. People would agree that they will come. And then when the food is ready, the, foods, the, the host servant is sent out um, at the exact time to gather those who are invited to come in and enjoy. But then they all flake. Every single invited guest flakes. We'll come back to examine the nature of these excuses a little later. But the banquet's host is incredulous. He's angry, understandably so, because this is both unusual and highly offensive, and immediately sends the servant back out to bring in anyone else that would come in until the banquet is full. The picture of the feast is used in many places throughout scripture to represent the kingdom of God and tells us a lot about it. First, it is beautiful. Scripture is clear that the celebration awaiting us in eternity is more amazing than we could possibly imagine in this life. Every time an analogy is used for feast as the kingdom of God, adjectives like finest and best and lavish are used. Even more importantly than that, it is a place where there will be no more death and no more tears. In Isaiah chapter 25, about 700 years before Jesus is sitting here with these Pharisees, Isaiah prophesied so beautifully, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. He was predicting that the coming of Jesus and his bearing of our sins on the cross to rise three days later would destroy death as they knew it and usher in the beautiful kingdom of God. Throughout scripture, the kingdom of God is to be understood as both to come and present here and now. A couple chapters after this in Luke 17, Jesus talks about this. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is both in heaven, in eternity to come, an unbelievable celebration that we can't begin to understand here. But we also get to see beautiful glimmers of it here in this life through gospel community as we follow Jesus together. It's in our midst. So this is a beautiful invitation. Scripture is also clear that the invitation is for everyone. 
for all people. In the story we're reading, it's said that many are invited. And we see throughout the story that they continue to be invited in various groups because verse 22, there is still room, and verse 23, so that my house will be full. In Luke 13, it says people come from east and west and north and south to take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. The groups Jesus mentions in verse 23 are the same he mentions before the parable starts when he's schooling the Pharisees, as he's undoubtedly hammering home an earlier point that are not being exclusive. Misfits that would have been seen as not very useful, um, he's welcoming into the kingdom of God. Then when it's still not full, he sends the servant out again to people who might be traveling outside the city gates to bring them all in as well. Some scholars will talk about how the different groups allegorically represent the Pharisees that he's initially talking to at this dinner, then the cultural Jews that would have historically been the next to hear about this invitation, and then maybe the ones outside the city gates that are traveling um, are the representing the ones that are not ethnically Jews, the Gentiles. So most of us would fall into this category, who Jesus makes clear are also very welcome in the kingdom of God, and in fact, compelled or encouraged by the host to join. I think it's helpful and good for us to understand the historical context of these layers because ultimately the gospel tells us that we are all created equal. So it's not favoritism that this parable is talking about. It's more of a warning to the guys that Jesus is having dinner with and talking to. Hey, you're privileged that you happen to be hearing about this invitation first. But if you make excuses, plenty are, more are going to hear about it, and they're very welcome. We know because there's a powerful shift in the original language in verse 24. Jesus changes his pronoun to a plural you. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will taste of my banquet. Meaning he's back to talking to the guys that he's having dinner with instead of telling the story. And most importantly, has clarified himself as the host of this ultimate banquet. So the invitation is for everyone. And the host is Jesus. We also learn from this parable that the invitation doesn't ask us to bring anything. The feast is prepared for us. We don't earn our admission. We just have to show up. Literally, someone comes to us, tells us it's time to come, and we make a decision on whether or not we're going to join. We don't need to bring a gift, a six-pack, a side, a dessert. We're just asked to say yes and show up. Similar to the parable of the prodigal son, what a beautiful and important note is the aspect of the host, right? The character of the host and what it communicates about his heart of God who's making the invitation. He doesn't rest in sending out the servant until the banquet is full. In fact, the word compel that is used in verse 23, this is not a negatively coercive word in the original Greek, but one of great care and hospitality. Tell them, even if they are hesitant to say yes, which of course we would all be if we were traveling and some stranger comes up to us and is like, hey, come and have dinner with us, right? They're welcome here, and we want them to come in. We would love them to come in. God would love us to come in. Have you said yes to God's invitation? Because we're confident that you're invited, just as you are, without needing to bring anything with you. That is the gospel. This is a story about an invitation to relationship with Jesus, and it's a beautiful one. But that's not all. 
It is also clear that on Jesus' heart here are the excuses that we tend to make. For those that don't yet follow Jesus, these may be excuses that prevent us from saying yes to the invitation. But Jesus is also talking to those of us who do have a relationship with him. How do we get that from this parable? We know it because he follows the parable immediately with teaching a crowd about how hard it is to prioritize relationship with him. Around the same themes that he touches on in this parable. This is one of the many things that I adore about Jesus. He is so real. He gets me. He gets you. He understands what makes it hard, and he doesn't sugarcoat it. Let's look back at the reasons that the people in the story who initially say yes ultimately choose not to accept this gracious host's invitation. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Let's try updating this to Silicon Valley terms. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought this self-driving car that also turns into a plane and sometimes a boat. It runs on natural gas and can feed my dog when I'm out of town, and it's getting delivered today, and I need to go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, my VC just made an investment in this small company that I need to figure out how to merge, and I'm super busy and important on my way to talk to them. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just had a kid, and I need to figure out how to make sure she's safe from every potential harm that the world can throw at her, and that she can learn to code by the time she's four, so that she can disrupt the lemonade industry with an online lemonade stand by the time she's 12, and make sure to get into a top five college. Please excuse me. What are the reasons that people give for not being more involved in the kingdom of God? Property? business, and family. Are these things bad in and of themselves? No, not at all. In fact, scripture tells us that the kingdom of God is actually worked out in and through these things in our lives. Following Jesus should make us a better steward of resources, a better employee and manager, a better parent or spouse or child, But anything that becomes our ultimate thing, that causes us to hold on when Jesus says to release, that causes us to rely on ourselves for security and worth, that causes us to disobey when Jesus is nudging us by the Holy Spirit to go, these all can keep us from experiencing the beauty of the kingdom of God. When we look at the examples of these excuses, there is a critical timing word involved in every excuse. I just bought a field. I have just bought five oxen, and I just got married. There's an urgency to their prioritizing other things over God's invitation. Time is such a critical resource for us here in the Silicon Valley, isn't it? There's a reason that delivery startups make such a killing here, right? Because for so many of us, time is worth more than a couple extra bucks, right, for a tip on a delivery. If you drive around on rush hour here, um, this truth is incredibly apparent. Everyone is in such a rush all the time. Our family lives on a street with a four-way stop sign, and during rush hour, literally no one waits their turn. I mean, I'm a rule follower by nature, and I am guilty of this because it's very normal not to wait your turn. 
What would it look like in your life to prioritize the kingdom of God with your time? To prioritize his daily invitations to push the kingdom forward and be a light in this world for him. Because God tells us that if we're looking for the opportunities, they're there. Maybe it looks like taking an extra five minutes in the parking lot in the morning before work or after dropping our kids to quiet our soul before the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit to lead us into having his eyes for the 35,000 decisions we're getting ready to make that day. Maybe it's listening to worship music or reading scripture that centers our heart and mind on Jesus during the commute instead of using it to take a call or get ahead for the day. Maybe it looks like making eye contact with that coworker when we're getting coffee or a snack at the micro kitchen that morning and seeing that maybe they had a hard weekend or a hard morning and genuinely wanting to know what's up, even though it'd be a lot easier to avoid eye contact and get back to that deadline at our desk that's weighing on our mind. Maybe it looks like leaving what feels like chaos in your kitchen or your desk at work to prioritize gathering for worship or getting to group that week to be in community with one another. Or even to invite others into your mess for the sake of community when you don't have time to be totally put together, even though it may mean people think we don't have it all together. Because guess what? I don't have it all together, and maybe you don't either. As a side note, this is an extremely relevant example for our family right now because I accidentally flooded our kitchen a month ago, and our first floor has been in total chaos. And so inviting people into that is hard, right? We give excuses because of time. We all do. To dig into it a little bit more, the third excuse given in verse 20 says, I just got married, so I can't come. Commentators will talk about how this people or family-related excuse is actually the most plausible and socially acceptable excuse of the three. Because back in that day, men were excused from military duty and civic obligation for about a year after they got married. And yet Jesus clearly doesn't see it as an acceptable excuse for not prioritizing the kingdom of God. Interestingly, Family is probably also the most socially acceptable way that we as Christians in America idolize something over the kingdom of God, letting something become our ultimate thing. Those of us that have kids, if we examine ourselves honestly, do we actually prioritize Jesus over our kids? We were at a local church planting conference earlier this week where one of the pastors, Ray Johnston, out of Sacramento, made a really interesting observation that we are the most safety-conscious generation of parents that has ever existed in all of mankind. He said something that we're like, we're the most seat-belted, sunscreened, locked up, password-protected, inoculated, allergy-avoiding, blah, 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 generation of all time. Now, safety is good. Uh, we value it here as a community. All of our kids' workers are background checked, right? That's a non-negotiable. But the point he's making is safety can become just a veneer for fear being the dominant driver of our decision-making as parents today in the 21st century. It now runs the risk of becoming the ultimate thing. And as a result, in his opinion, the greatest impediment to the life-changing spread of the gospel into the world in this generation is, wait for it, Christian parents. It's a data-driven fact at this point that 
66% of kids raised in the church over this last generation are leaving it when they turn 18. Maybe this is your friends. Maybe this was you. Why is that? Pastor Francis Chan makes an incredibly compelling argument that to raise up kids that will go anywhere or do anything that God tells them to do is much more likely if they've seen their parents live this way in faith, taking risks, trusting Jesus with our lives and the lives of our children, being careful that we don't build up family instead of building up the kingdom, allowing family to become the ultimate thing. We are turning away our children from Jesus by the droves, he says, because our lives are not the adventure that they see in scripture, and they are not experiencing the Holy Spirit. They're experiencing a Christian version of the American dream, idolizing our families instead of putting Christ and the mission first. Friends, do our kids see us turning to God in times of crisis? Are we even in positions where we need to? Do our kids see us serving others in the name of Jesus? Do our kids see that sometimes we're prioritizing things of the kingdom over their bedtime or their routine? Do our kids see us stewarding our finances, trusting him in the way we give to the church and act generously to take care of others? Do our kids have opportunities to get to know kids that aren't like them and don't have the same background as them? Do our kids see us getting to know people that aren't like us? Do they see us getting uncomfortable in the name of Jesus? The passage just following this parable uses a hyperbole that unless we hate our father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even our own lives, in order to follow Jesus, we are not following him well. Does Jesus actually want us to hate these people in our lives? Clearly no. This is the Jesus that teaches 59 one another's in scripture that talk about loving and honoring and serving one another. It's a literary tool to help us understand that to follow Jesus in a way where we really start to walk in the beauty of the kingdom of God, every relationship pales in comparison to our relationship with him. Are we living that way? If we ask ourselves if we love the person we're dating more or God more, what does our heart say? If we ask ourselves if we love our kids more or with God more, what does our heart say? If we ask ourselves whether we love our reputation at work more or God more, what does God say? What does our heart say? The excuse of relationship with others taking priority over our relationship with God is age old and has so many permutations. I want to take us back to Numbers 20 in the Old Testament. The setting is on the eve of the Israelites getting ready to enter the promised land. They, they have a propensity for um, disobedience and messing up. So they've been wandering as a result in the wilderness for 40 years and have come full circle back to a place called Kadesh where the water has now dried up. They're thirsty and they're tired and they gang up on Moses and Aaron who have faithfully led them through all kinds of trials and attacking them. Why did you drag us out of Egypt here to the wilderness? We wish we were dead. Moses and Aaron throw themselves before God in desperation and in exhaustion from being attacked. And God is gracious. He commands Moses to take his staff, to assemble the people, to speak to the rock, and out of it will flow water. So Moses takes his staff, and he and Aaron round up the troops, and he yells this. Listen, rebels. 
Do we have to bring water out of this rock for you? And he raises his arm and he slams his staff against the rock and water pours out. Great, right? Miraculous water. But wait, what did God tell him to do? God told him to speak to the rock and instead he slammed it with his staff. There's any number of excuses that Moses could give in that moment. He was tired. He was frustrated with his people. He was getting old. He had been obedient enough in the decision he made to strike the rock. He didn't prioritize his relationship with God over his relationship with the people. And as a result, God says, because you didn't trust me, didn't treat me with holy reverence in front of the people of Israel, you aren't going to lead this company into the land I am giving them. Does this resonate? Because it sure does with me. Every day we are given opportunities to trust God with our reputations, to be obedient to what he asks of us, and to give him the glory. Small decisions, big decisions. Decisions that impact our relationship with others, that impact our ability to be involved in God's work. Are we revering and trusting him with our decisions? We give excuses because of other relationships being more important to us. Let's talk a little bit about jobs. There may be times when it doesn't seem to make financial sense or it doesn't make sense for our career to prioritize relationship with Jesus, right? This is really relevant to us here in the Silicon Valley. My first job out of college was for a management consulting firm up in San Francisco. I arrived all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and I was super eager to do a good job. I gave it everything I had, but the hours were crazy and unpredictable. And although I tried hard to find a church and get involved, I could almost never make it to anything, to midweek group, to people hanging out. I was never there because I was either traveling or I was at a project on the peninsula, and there was no way to make it up to the East Bay in time after work. After about a year of this and not really being able to serve in the church, not being able to be available for community because I just couldn't be relied on, it was really starting to impact me and my relationship with Jesus. I was exhausted from having to make excuses all the time. So I made a decision to start looking for another job. The promotion and bonus cycles were coming up in February and I figured I could move as soon as that was over. I knew I was up for promotion and that could help me to get a leg up on whatever next position I had. I had been on a consulting project for Gap earlier that year and I found it really enjoyable, so I started by looking there. I applied, it was the only place I had time to apply before an interview and then an offer came in in rapid succession. Looking back, it was just God's hand and it was the right role. It was the people God wanted me to meet. And God has used that company in so many different ways in our life and ministry since then, even up until this at, here today at Current. But at the time, I wavered um, because they weren't flexible with timing. They were getting ready to launch Piper Lime and they needed more hands on deck. And I had to start in January or they were going to go with another candidate. February was the bonus time. So hesitantly, I let the bonus and the promotion cycle go, which is significant in the consulting world because so much of your compensation is based on your performance over the previous year. I wasn't sure in the moment if I had made the right decision, and I had been planning on that bonus for a number of things, including the cost to go on a short-term missions trip with that church that summer. 
A couple weeks after I started at Gap, one of the principals in the San Francisco office emailed me, and he asked me to meet him for coffee. And there he handed me an envelope. The envelope was full of cash. He had gone around to all the directors and principals in the office and asked them to contribute out of their own bonuses into a bonus for me, even though I had left the company. When I opened the envelope after he left, it was more than enough for the missions trip to East Asia that summer, and also paid for my move over to the East Bay so that I could be closer to the gospel community God had called me to at that time. The short-term trip with the church that summer ended up being the trip where David and I started to get to know one another, and we started to date the next year. Looking back, I still get a little overwhelmed because God was gracious enough to clearly show and teach me that choosing the kingdom may not have made material sense in the moment, but he absolutely owns the cattle on a thousand hills and is sovereign enough to have the power to make things happen however he chooses. I want to be clear in using this example that I don't think God always confirms our decisions with envelopes of cash. We really don't believe in the prosperity gospel here at Current. But what I do think it taught me and what I hope you can see is that God is much bigger than the economics of our strategizing, our planning, our timing of things that we can see. If we prioritize the kingdom instead of our excuses, we may just find ourselves in a position where we have to trust him to come through. And when he does, he gets all the glory. There's a beautiful verse in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, that really sums the heart of this up. David loves to remind me of this one when I'm wrestling. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So much of our journey as followers of Jesus is learning step by step, day by day, to trust God with our story to see just how much our everyday lives are connected to eternity and the kingdom of God, learning that God invites us to join him in bringing forth renewal in this world and into eternity with each of our 35,000 decisions that we make every day. Jesus invites us not only to a feast in eternity, which he tells us is going to be amazing, He also invites us to be an integral part of seeing his kingdom come and his will be done here in the Silicon Valley. What would it look like for us to be a community made up of individuals that doesn't make excuses, that walks around the Silicon Valley trusting God with everyday micro decisions that push forward the kingdom of God in the neighborhoods, workplaces, schools that he's placed us in, What would be the impact if each of us made just one less excuse and said one more yes to Jesus every day? Can you imagine? That's a challenge I believe this passage has for us today, church family. To walk into our Monday tomorrow with a heart open to learning more and more how to connect the decisions we make our Monday through Friday with the kingdom of God. To be open to how the Holy Spirit leads us to make one less excuse about not having time, to make one less excuse that prioritizes another relationship over the one we have with Jesus, to make one less excuse because we're holding on to something that is really only ours to steward in the first place. Ultimately, the parable of the great banquet is about decisions, about how we decide to respond to the invitation of God, the host of heaven, regardless of where we are on our spiritual journey. 
If you have not yet made a decision to follow Jesus, he invites you today to join the feast, to be a part of the beautiful kingdom of God that is being worked out in our midst. And to the ultimate feast, we can't even imagine that is to come. If you'd like to understand how to make this decision, please talk to us. We would love to walk with you in it. For those of us already following Jesus, we're passionate as a church family about never graduating from the gospel. And in the same way, God is inviting us in innumerable everyday ways to take another step toward prioritizing the kingdom of God first, to rely on the power of his Holy Spirit that enters us when we say yes to relationship with him, to have the strength and capacity to be life changers and world changers for the sake of his glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would your word sink deeply into our hearts today such that we can walk out into Monday, tomorrow, making decisions for you, making decisions that prioritize you. Would you help us in this? Would your Holy Spirit lead us in this? We trust you and we love you. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.